Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hyper Literature Presents. <clears throat> let, me, let me try that again. Let's do another take of that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hyper Literature Presents. How's that sound? Does that sound good? How's the diction on that? I got comments about the diction. Is the diction okay? Cool. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hyper Literature Presents. In this episode, I sit down with the uh, the the brains behind the Homegrown Revival in Austin, Texas. The Homegrown Revival is a nonprofit organization that's dedicated to trying to explore sustainability in food in uh, the Austin area, in and around the Austin area. Uh, they're a group of people that I've been working with for. About a year and a half now, I've been writing stories for them, going to their events and things like that. They're dedicated to food education and all kinds of really cool, interesting stuff. And uh, as as part of a way to raise funds for the Homegrown Revival, they hold these really great dinners, dinner clubs uh, every every few months, and uh, they're they're really amazing. Um, so I sat down with uh, first I sat down with Sonia Cote. She is the executive chef at Hillside Pharmacy in Austin. Uh, formerly from Eastside Showroom, uh, but now the, she, she's the executive chef at Hillside Pharmacy, and she is in the process of opening up, opening up a new restaurant, Eden East, at Springdale Farms. And in fact, I I met her at Springdale Farms in the Eden East dining room while everyone was working on it, and she literally had. 15 minutes to sit down with me because the next night she was planning a dinner for South by Southwest. There were people from L.A. coming in, and it was just pure chaos. So I can't tell you how much I appreciated her sitting down with me. She is uh, she is a chef to watch out for. Uh, so if you ever get a chance, go by Hillside Pharmacy. And when it opens, by all means, go to Eden East, which is at Springdale Farms. So I sit down and talk to Sonia about food, about her new restaurant, and um, and just about about sustainability and farming in general. And then the second part of this podcast, I sat down with David and Charles Barrow, and they're also part of they are also part of Homegrown Revival, and they are two really interesting, great guys. I, I can't say enough good things about them. And we spend the first five minutes of this podcast talking about how we went to the same college, went to Baylor University. Charles and I were in the English department at the same time, and we did not know one another. It was really weird. And so we ended up meeting about three years ago, and just as our friendship unfolded, we found out that we had been crossing paths our entire life. So bear with about the first five minutes of it. We visit, and then we start talking about sustainability food eating in the United States and it's a really interesting cool fun conversation. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Again, uh my guests are the the people behind the Homegrown Revival, Sonia Cote and Charles and David Barrow. So this is Hyper Literature Presents podcast number 4 with the Homegrown Revival. Enjoy. All right, Sonia. Can right. we have a quick conversation? Sure. Very quick. Okay. Um so I'm going to talk to the boys later about Homegrown Revival and things like that. And okay. I guess maybe since we don't have a whole lot of time, maybe we can just kind of talk about your vision for for the new restaurant that you're opening up here at Springdale Farms. Okay. Um, well, we're about knee-deep in it right now, uh, getting everything ready for, uh, I guess, a preview dinner um, for tomorrow, 50 people. So uh, we're prepping in the new space, which is amazing because it's a view of the whole farm. Yeah, it's beautiful out here. Yeah, it's it's really inspiring, and I love to see what's growing straight from the ground and know that I can pull it and bring it right to the kitchen. And so you've had dinners out here before, which have been absolutely amazing, but now you're going to have this full full kitchen, I would assume. So are you going to be limited in any way uh, about the dishes that you can serve or the events that you can hold or is it just now it's just i think it's more freeing for sure i have uh, a vent hood i have gas power i have uh you know deep fryer <laughs> dogs barking <laughs> um yeah i think that it's gonna allow us to do a lot more actually um how do you see it being different from hillside well this is gonna be on a prefix menu that changes weekly it's not a set menu like Hillside. Uh, it's definitely going to be more experimental. Um, you know, I want to play with some new plating techniques and work on that area. I think that I need a lot of work in in that in that spot, you know, in that location of of the of the culinary. 
So do you see this as more kind of like a, a communal atmosphere than kind of like the homegrown revival events themselves? Or do you see it as more of a kind of a um, – I don't know. Let me. What is your vision for it? I mean the hillside has got a really cool dining area, and it's got a really – specific vibe i guess yeah well for for the new space here on the farm i think that the that the vibe is the farm and giving people uh access to that and so they could find where to get their food i mean come back on a saturday morning or wednesday morning uh they you know that i mean the atmosphere is already here it's it's the farm and i just sure. incorporate the small restaurant into the space available and just have it all sort of blend t- together. But the f- focus is obviously the fact that w- we have the, these wonderful places in downtown Austin, Texas. I mean, this is seventh and Springdale road. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And I, and I know I've talked to David and Charles about this before. I mean, having grown up on a farm on I mean, 900 acre farm, Knowing that there are farms like this, it just blew my mind. Yeah. You know, the first time that we came out here, this this blew my mind. I mean, five acres of happiness. Look at the farmer and his wife right there walking their rows. I mean, just having the family living here on the property that the restaurant is at is just inspiring too. And I and I'm hope I'm hoping that I can, you know, buy all of the produce that they don't use aftermarket and kind of base the menu for the next day on that to help them out and i mean paying them rent for their property sure um is is also helping these small farm family farms out and especially in austin because they have huge property taxes in this part of town too yeah and, and i remember i've talked with david about that before and and we've talked about it out here at the homegrown revival events but they're practically pricing these people out of out of farming yeah yeah i mean they the, the city basically came over and said that this land would better be suited for condos than farm. And, I mean, I don't even know how much their property tax went up in the last year. It's amazing. That's, yeah, that's really sad. So Very sad. We need to buy as much from them as possible and yeah. do as many things out here as we can for to make sure that our food is being grown. One of the things that really always draws me back to home, homegrown revival, and one of the reasons that I continually try to get new people there is that the types of meals that you serve encourages people to really try new foods. You know, I had uh, one of our friends came and she was a former vegetarian and she ate stuff at one of your events that she never thought she would eat in her life. Um, do you have that a lot at the homegrown events? I mean, do you, do you have people come up to you and say, yes, I mean, that's my favorite thing. I live for that. I honestly do. I mean, if some, if I can get somebody to enjoy an oyster that they're like, Oh, that's disgusting. And then I watch them eat it and it's like, Oh my God, I can, taste the ocean and i mean that kind of stuff thrills me i i, I love it i live for it and, and that was one of the foods that, that one of my friends tried that you had her try specifically <laughs> when we were out here with the uh the family style homegrown event that you had and you i think it was axis and oysters yeah and yeah um you had her try an oyster and then she tried axis for the first time and it blew her mind i think i remember her yeah <laughs> she was so nervous about it but it was fantastic yeah, though i love doing that uh you know and plus the misconception of how expensive good food is i think that the missing link is learning how to prepare food Mm. and also learning how to use all of all of it i mean you know the i have a bag full of duck hearts right now that i'm about to trim up and you know make confit and add it to some goose liver that i got yesterday and i mean these are things that are edible and really delicious and um well, I think in, in, in learning a little bit about food, too, you mentioned it, you know, it's affordable and it's things that everyone can do. It's, it's one of those things that if you want to make, if you just want to have a meal with filet steaks, that's expensive as hell. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to go just buy two filets. But if you know how to cut down a pismo or you know how to get a, a big loin and cut it down and cut the roast out and cut the chain off and all that type of stuff. Yeah. Then it becomes affordable. Yeah, and then you can make stock, and then you can braise those pieces that are weird, and you know, make tacos, and then have three meals out of it. So yeah, and it's amazing to me that a lot of people don't think of it in that way. Right. But one of the things about the homegrown events that just, again, that keeps drawing me back to them is the fact that the normally the menus incorporate a lot of different parts of the same animal. Yeah, and vegetables. I mean, that's the other thing that I like to do is use. All vegetables. I mean, I'm really into carrot tops right now, and I, uh, people 
don't even realize that they're edible. If you pick them like parsley, they're delicious and you can add them to your salad. It just adds extra flavor and you can braise them. I mean, stuff like that, uh, carrot leaf or I'm sorry, celery leaf, um, is delicious braised and, um, you know, just all kinds of the, you know, you pickle beet stems and you can sure. fry butternut skins and make chips out of them. I mean, there's so many things you can do to vegetables to make them last. What do you attribute that, um, this is kind of off, off of your stuff, but I'd, I'd like to get your opinion on it. What do you attribute that interest in now? I mean, now there's this whole movement, you know, the, the hoof to tail type yeah, I, ethos around eating is it because of celebrity cooks? Is it nah. because that we've we've been away from it for so long, and now our generations are reclaiming it? Or uh, I mean, in my opinion, it, I believe that it's like collective consciousness that in order to sustain ourselves as a species, we need to relearn how to live a sustainable diet. And I and I believe that it is part of relearning the past and how we came to populate the planet and um you know if we just continue to you know basically rape the earth uh it's gonna not provide for us and we have to be respectful of the um land so okay well i know you got to go sonia yeah so we'll go ahead and pause here i would love to get you back on some other time but thank you for recording with me i really appreciate it my pleasure <laughs> thanks yes sir Good. All right. We're good to go, boys. All right. So we've got uh, Charles and David Barrow here today. Both of these guys are from Homegrown Revival. Um, and oddly enough, we all grew up within, uh, what, 25 miles of each other? Just about around the Waco area. Yeah, about 30, 25, 30 miles an hour or from, from one another, which is uh, really weird. And then graduated from college from the same college together, too. That's Baylor just University. scary. Without ever having known one another. Which just blows my mind. I still can't the fact it. that we were in the same building for so long. Yeah. <laughs> Carol spent, Science, right? Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the building yeah. uh, outside smoking cigarettes. Uh, trying the to fountains. Avoid, yep, trying to avoid classes, things yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. So I, I went to all mine. I don't know what you guys are talking about. What? <laughs> yeah. What was your major? Oh, I was in the photo studio the entire time. There's no fucking way. Huffing so photo chemicals. <laughs> hot little girls in the, in the photo lab. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And we didn't have that with their... With the, in the English, English department? Building. Yeah, no, Not we didn't so have much. that either. Uh, you, you could watch the, the theater people, and you could always tell who they were because they had berets and they smoked light cigarettes. That's right. They had, they had the berets and they smoked light cigarettes. So um, It was a big change from the Marlboro Reds. Well, that was my brand too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, wow, that's great. So how long have the Homegrown Revivals been going on for now? I think Lee and I have been going now for almost two years. Right. So the Homegrown Revival had its very first dinner in November of 2011, um, and since then it's now served over 20 dinners. Um, they're typically monthly, but there's been months that we've done two. Right. And then there are small dinners that we're ended up doing as uh, auction items where the chef and one other person will go in there and, and take a farm tour in the morning, whatever ingredients are purchased that morning, uh, will go into someone's home and do cooking demos, and then host a private party. Wow. So from this point on, so now now Sonia has two restaurants on her plate, right? True. Is, and, and is she in charge? So is she the executive chef in at Hillside? Is she designing the menu and, and basically controlling the rudder, as it were? Yeah. So Sonia's responsibilities uh, at Hillside Pharmacy are executive chef. So that's dictating the menu and then working with the new chef de cuisine, um, Mitch, on what they're actually going to be purchasing, what they're going to be doing on a day-to-day -day basis. Mitch holds the responsibility of working the day-to-day -day line. Okay. Um, and then Sonia will go in there Sunday through Tuesday, cook, enjoy herself, and then keep on expressing her food art. Um, but once Eden's East opens up, she will then spend Mondays at Hillside Pharmacy and then Friday, Saturday, Sundays at Eden's East, which will be her signature restaurant. Gotcha, gotcha. And then you will still intersperse the Homegrown Revival events. Exactly. That's what's great about the Homegrown is that Homegrown's never on the weekend. And so she can do her food art and her family community 
to the wider public at a prefix restaurant at, at Eden's East, but then can continue doing the family style dinners that we get to challenge the public with eating certain items, right. speaking about certain things, and in inviting people to come speak at the dinners, at the homegrown dinners on you know Tuesdays or Wednesdays. And that was one of the things that I wanted to make sure that, that us three discussed, because mm-hmm. I think that... Well, I'll just speak from our community. So when we when we grew up, or at least when I grew up around Waco, I think one of the things that, and looking back, that still just blows my mind is that I was surrounded by farmers, completely surrounded by farmers. So north northwest of Waco, um, there were a few small restaurants and things like that. None of the restaurants used any of the produce, any of the protein from the farmers in the community. I mean, all of the produce was sold in markets in Houston or to big corps and things like that. My dad's dairy. He he's part of a co-op. Um, so, do you see this as more for you guys? Is this more of kind of a, a mission? Is it more of a like a life's work? I guess to try to reconnect the restaurants, the people who are eating with the food around them, or is it just something that you guys have kind of fallen into? Well, you want to go first? I, I will go first. Go. Actually, so I actually always had interest in in changing that. Well, I always knew the supply chain needed to change. So it's the distribution channel and the supply chain as it's set up right now that causes your like your community where even though someone who has a restaurant could literally go an acre away and get a, a, a cow and cook that cow and serve some steaks or whatnot, the supply chain is not set up that way. Right. Um, and so there is a there is a need to change that. Hence, there should be a mission behind it to accommodate said change, right, or facilitate said change. Uh, Now, I never put a whole lot of conscious effort into that until David moved here to Austin from San Francisco and just sort of reiterated that, hey, the the, the bigger picture is not necessarily about, hey, let's subjectively be happy about reconnecting with our foods. That's what creates awareness, Uh, but that the change itself has to occur in whether it be government legislation, whether it be manufacturing, uh, shipping, you know, all the little pieces that, that, that come together in order to get that protein item or that produce item from the farm next door to the restaurant because there are laws in place that won't let you just walk, pick it up, and bring it back. Yeah, and that, that again, that's one of those things that just blows my mind. I, I can't understand why that legislation would be there. Um, and I guess that's a different topic. And, and David, I guess – so when you if, came back from San Francisco, is that an ethos that you brought with you? Yes, uh, that was part of the ethos that I brought with me, and I had seen that in several places where it was a flavor thing on the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lifestyle uh, for me through just a political, economic, and social atmosphere. Uh, so I was able to go to places and enjoy the expression of chefs through what they thought was the best ingredients. That's a chef's job. And I a guess, chef's job is to bring you the freshest, best-tasting ingredients and then put that on a plate for you. And I think that there's been a sea change all over the United States to be able to do that. And Austin is still fairly young, and they're, it's catching on. And it's going past the trend phase now. It's going into that lifestyle change. Um, so I brought that with me on a personal level, and then Sonia and I had – always spoken about it and elaborated on it with each other. And of course that is something that she's always wanted to do. But, you know, one more thing is that community aspect, right? Families eating together, friends eating together and being able to share your life with someone else, share your passions with someone else. It's super important. Instead of losing touch with people, we want to throw people together and you can do that over food, and you can do that across a dinner table from each other um, because it's a concentrated area. There's no running away. And, and for me, one of the things that I think that we've lost, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I think one of the things that we've lost in this country is that food isn't necessarily just about sustenance, nor is it about a status symbol. So I've got a weird theory, and again, I may be incorrect, but I think one of the reasons that we moved away from this community view of food like other countries have was because of the advertising and the just the prevailing zeitgeist of the 50s and 60s where everything if you look into advertising everything was automated everything was the jetsons everything was sparkly clean and robots did stuff for you i mean if you look into the advertising that was that was the zeitgeist and i think it almost became one of those things like 
our grandparents did that. That's not – I mean that's what poor people do. You know what I mean? That, that, that learning how to create stock, that learning how to, to use bones, that learning how to use offal, that learning how to use all these things, that's what poor people did. You know, And I think it's taken several generations to kind of – I don't know, maybe work its way out of the system or maybe the system's starting to break and we have no other, no other option. I think it's a fight within really uh, the the change towards um, being efficient being to get as much done as possible in the little amount of time and to have convenience was the American dream American dream mm-hmm. consisting of houses, kids, cars, vacations, etc that is just fine, and that shouldn 't be taken away now, but the important things in life, which are your family and friends, should be given a priority. And so this movement that's come back is in part of that, but I also think it's the empowerment of the community over those who govern us. Mm. Um, so taking the thought of someone else telling us what to do and then owning your decisions and owning your lifestyle is becoming more important. And the food movement is one of those things. The art movement has always been behind one of those things. Um, would you – can you name any other ones that uh, would uh, add to that? Uh, probably so, but you know, just would want to go back to the idea of, of convenience and, and how things change to begin with. And I always forget the, the fellow's name. He was the, the head of the Department of Agriculture 40-some-odd years ago. Uh, and as much as I disagree with what he did, the fact of the matter is as a capitalist – it was an extremely intelligent plan uh, to try to get food to everybody and make it convenient, and, and so the TV dinners came out, and you know that was the immediate shift away from us preparing our own food on a consistent basis, doing what say our grandparents did. Right. Uh, and you know this 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 movement, if you will, this concept. While I believe it, it all starts with you know, all movements start with awareness and education. Awareness and education can easily be obtained through community building. Everybody comes together. That's the that's the feel good portion of it, right? Um, but through that, like I'm start, sort of starting to lose my train of thought here. But through that, what you get to is the facilitating of change. Once you realize through education that there is a socioeconomic impact of keeping money in one's own community, and so I think that it's through the community discussions, through the awareness, people are starting to better understand. Hey. If I do go to the grocery store and if I do buy this mass-produced product, three cents of that, or is it three cents? So something, something effective. There's a very, very small percentage of that that actually stays within one's own community right, right, economically right. versus me being able to buy from my farmer. And I think it's 90% of that money stays in the community. And I think maybe part of it too for me comes back to kind of that. Uh, I mean, in, in linguistics, whenever you study how languages how languages kind of flourish, especially in diasporas, so when people move to different countries and things like that, what linguists notice is that the immigrants typically will will try their best to to assimilate, but because they're past the age of, of language acquisition, it's really difficult for them. So they retain accents, and they're always. They're always pointed to as an other. And so those people who are immigrants will typically try very hard to make sure that their children, the people who are born in the country, assimilate completely. They don't teach them the foreign language. They don't teach them any of the culture. They don't do any of that because they want their children to assimilate. So what ends up happening linguistically is that immigrants will retain the culture and language. The children will know nothing about it, and then their children, so the second generation born, will begin to take an interest in the grandparents, and they'll begin to try to reclaim that culture that's been lost. (laughs) And I almost see that in kind of the food movement, in kind of the democratization of the kitchen, for I guess for lack of a better word. You know, we're no longer being – or people are no longer happy to have someone else tell us you should eat these frozen dinners, I Mm -hmm. guess. Um, I've never, never thought about it like that, but uh, I think it's – I can see, I can picture in my head right now several examples where that's spot on, uh, right. where it is a matter of you know, he, here we are. I'm in my mid-30s, and I look at what I can do in the kitchen versus what I saw my parents do, which was Schwann's right. uh, versus what they've told me stories about their parents doing. Right. And I think that what we can do nowadays in the kitchen is very similar to what our grandparents did, but more to a degree of what – their parents it's what our great grandparents were doing uh and it quite literally is getting the freshest 
tastiest foods and actually taking the time even during our busy work days. And Lord knows we all pull 80-hour work weeks sometime, uh, but to be able to get into the kitchen and prepare that ourselves. Absolutely. And I hate to turn into an English nerd, but it reminds me of the Wordsworth poem, The World is Too Much, too, too much With Us Late and Soon, Getting and Spending well, We've Wasted Our Power. <laughs> but it's that whole that whole sense of why are we spinning our wheels? Like what are we spinning our wheels for? Just to keep spinning them, you know, at what point can we put the car in park and actually enjoy the scenery? And I think that I know at least from my parents, like mom is sick and she's still every morning up at 3.30 to make sure that the guys are out milking. And then she Mm -hmm. goes back to sleep and then she gets up to feed the cows at 6. Like when is it time to stop and kind of enjoy what you've built? You know what I mean? I guess but the, that's the lifestyle that she has chosen that she loves. Sure, sure. So that, that habit has not – it's not something to look down upon. It is something no, no, no. to revere no. because she's yeah. continually working hard. But to go back to your cultural thing is that I've – over the past two years, I've actually done this sort of research and been able, on, been able to be on the ground speaking to people. Right. And the uh, – the executive director behind Hope Campaign, which runs the Hope Farmers Market here, is a Chinese American, mm. and her mother, a first-generation uh, Chinese American here in the United States in Oklahoma, used to go to the market, get fresh produce, get fresh proteins, and everything, and still cook at home because right. that was part of the family atmosphere that she brought with her from China. And the woman who lives here. That is one of the reasons why she wanted to start Hope Farmer's Market because she goes, that is a destination spot to bring the community together so hopefully they can continually live. So it, even though we have skipped a generation or maybe two, there are the strong cultural personalities that are trying not to skip right. that generation. They want to be able to keep doing what their parents did. So, in a sense, it's largely, in my opinion, the American-born, American-bred, hmm. Caucasian families that are losing touch with history. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I think maybe the problem with that is, at least for me, it's hard to hard to see where, where my history is. You know, I mean, I guess being in the majority, being a, a white male, I don't... I don't recognize myself as any different, so it's not of interest to me to look backwards. I don't know. Maybe that sounds selfish. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> just it doesn't I, – I look for something to make me unique, and like the history or ancestry is not the first thing I think of. Well, what makes you unique is how you are going to define yourself. Sure. It's what you're doing right now. It is uh, being involved in education, uh, being involved in making a family and all that other good stuff. That's – that's what you make. How you make yourself unique. Um, we most people are going to think are going to define uniqueness as something different from them. Right. Well, you're different than everybody else. Very true. That's so feel good. That, that is so feel good. good. That's so feel good. <laughs> you know, to, to that point, um, it, I, I do hear what you're saying. Is that you know, and it is difficult for someone to. When I look at my buddy Roger. Uh, who is second generation, pretty sure second generation Mexican American uh, out of Corpus. Uh, in conversations, this this tradition that he has with his family will will come up, and whether it's tamales at Christmas and they all get together and make them, or you know, or you know, even quinceañeras, uh, he'll have a niece who will experience that here in the near future, uh, and the whole family will still will still do that, you know. We see that as unique only because – or as something to look upon with – you know, to revere. We'll, we'll use revere as a good word here because it's not something that we do. Um, yeah. So, But we're not exactly the most boring of borings just because we're Caucasian Americans. Uh, and then what I do when, when I look at uniqueness, and David's right, it is all about mindfulness and you know, what you do with your own life here in the present right now that makes you unique. But as a culture – uh, what what makes us unique is the ability to have this freedom of thought that we've consistently had that's going to allow us again to move forward and to bring it back around full circle to this food movement uh, to continually move forward the idea of, hey, we as a culture lost something. We want to get back the idea of building our communities, and that makes us unique because we do have that free-flowing thought process, and people do hop on those bandwagons. People do figure out ways to move it forward, and you can't do that in a lot of other countries. Right. 
when you simply are put down and not allowed. Well, and, and one of the things too that I want to get your get, get your opinions on, um, and this kind of brings it away from philosophy, kind of back into a practical conversation. At the Homegrown Revival events, and I talked to Sonia about this. You were, I think you were outside, David. One of the things that I think is just extraordinarily beautiful is I love bringing new people to them. I try to every time we come to one um, because Sonia ends up making some not making someone, but they will eat something they thought they, had, they would never eat in their entire life. And I think almost in every case, they have been blown away and thought, that was amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And th- that is such a cool feeling for me. Like you just you, – you gave somebody a new experience. Yeah. That is a beautiful thing. Oh, yeah, and it, and it happens often. I remember a, a recent dinner as well at a microgrocery here in, in Austin called Ingredients where there was a vegetarian. She was a vegetarian of almost a decade, and she ended up trying – and liking the small venison bites that were being served that night. Oh, yeah. Um, because it was fresh game. It was harvested by our forager. And that is becoming more commonplace because they go, we know where it came from. Right. So you're starting to they see. They trusted it. Right. They trusted yeah. it. So it wasn't just a dietary choice for medical purposes, which is a great thing to do, by the way. But it was a choice of diet because they didn't want to eat something that they were afraid of. Right. And to be a vegetarian and to try a protein that you're not afraid of, I think is a huge step. Um, and I'm going to lose my track of thought. That's okay. Cause I actually had lunch with her yeah. on Thursday to talk about May's dinner, mm-hmm. uh, the homegrown dinner for May, in May at ingredients mm-hmm. uh, again. And, and I, I asked her, I said, Hey, so what, have you been consuming any more meats? And she said, no, I haven't, but I know that I always will. And when I do, it will be under the, the umbrella of being educated on what that protein is. Mm-hmm. And she's actually looking forward to May because she really wants to consume some meat. That's so fantastic. <laughs> She's looking forward to seeing what Sonia does. Right. Uh, but there's statements that go all over the place that, you know, you being able to bring guests into the Homegrown Revival dinners and show them something different. Um, think about your best dates with your wife before you guys started dating or even after you got married. To go in and try something new there's a sense of challenge. There's a sense of uncomfortableness that goes in that. And whenever you two people go into that together and then finish that off together, it brings you guys closer together. Well, it's that band so of brothers experience. It's the band of brothers, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so even if going out with a friend and trying something new, whether it be food or skydiving or some other daredevil event, you're going to bring yourself closer. It just amazes me the people that are – that are frightened by that, I guess, or that are, or that are anxiety ridden because of that. You know, they don't want to try something new. What if I, what if I don't like it? What's the worst that can happen? Quite yeah, honestly, spit it out. Spit You're just it fine. Out. That's right. It's not as if we're going to laugh at. Well, we would, but I mean, <laughs> in a nice way, in a, in, a, in, a, in a friendly way, we would encourage you to laugh as well. But I mean, it's just one of those things. It's not going to kill you. You know, it's 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 either going to be something you really love or strike it off of your menu. I guess. Mm-hmm. I have a friend, and um, I, I would I would love for you guys to meet him. But he he is convinced that he has, uh, and the DSM is considering entering this entering entering this as an actual psychological condition, and ex- a food anxiety. And he he is a he's a professional in the business world, and he says that he absolutely freaks out whenever they have to go to a business meal because he's afraid that he's going to be served something that he's not going to like. And it is, it is almost – he said his, it is almost debilitating for him hmm. that it's one of those anxieties that he just it, – it, it makes him so nervous that he almost has to call in sick. No kidding. Well, yeah. it's amazing. Well, is, is he an avid reader of food health issues and anything like that or what's going on in the world or is this more of a – No, he is an – he, he has a consolidated diet. He has the diet of a 12-year-old. So he loves awesome mac and cheese and fish sticks. Bring it on. That's what I was about to say. So it's, it's, I think I just chucked a little bit. It's chicken fingers, chicken fried steak, uh, nothing green whatsoever, and that's about it. If he gets a burger, there's nothing on it, no condiments, nothing like that. 
So, so to what you know, what Dave was just saying there, though that that that, that line of questioning on does he read about food health and food safety, and is that adding to his insecurity? You know, that's one of the issues that I have when it comes to business dinners and mm. having to take clients out, and they say, "Oh yeah, well, let's go to." I mean, not not that Applebee's would actually be a place where we're going to have a business dinner. Although, actually, you know what? In Chicago, <laughs> a few years ago, uh, I did get taken to. Um, it wasn't an Applebee's, but it was a like restaurant. I think it was it was another Brinker restaurant, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just it was just gross. <laughs> I remember thinking, I don't want to go and have those GMO chickens and See, everything else. I don't want to put that in my body. But that's, that's what, what I the hate wanted. about going back to Waco. That's all there is there. That's all there is is those fucking chain restaurants, mm-hmm. and it is horrid. Yeah, every it's... every chain restaurant is Cisco. As a Cisco restaurant, and they all have. Oh. And then that one sandwich shop next to the HEB on 12th. Aren't they supposed to be doing fresh ingredients? They were. Hopefully, it's still open. I don't know. It, it, it's little bitty. It, it literally Which, is right across the street from the the HEB on 12th. Uh, I think it was called Food for Thought. I think you're spot on. Is that the is that the HEB that's down there by Baylor? Mm-hmm. The ghetto heap did. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say that on the podcast. Well, that's what it is. is. <laughs> well, that, that's what it was. Uh, he just dropped that bomb and said, "Get over here, let's do this." That, that's that's what it was called. Uh, yeah, as a matter yeah. of fact, no, I have a have a friend who is a who is a police officer, and he would moonlight there, and he said that he would just kind of lock himself in the office, and uh, he would read read comic books, and that was it. Because he said, "I didn't want to go out and deal with any of those people." Yeah, it, was, it was frightening. It's, it's very interesting where Baylor is is situated in Waco. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, they were supposed to be by, you know, not to be too far off subject, but they were supposed to be where MCC is. What was? Uh, Baylor. Really? And at that time, there were actually some some brothels or something like that out in that area. And so they said, no, 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 we're going to go ahead and build it on the other side of the, the river. Um, or I guess the other side of what is now I-35. And it just turned out that the way the city ended up building up, that that's where all the housing projects Got put was around Baylor, and then that area where MCC is is still gorgeous, wow. with rolling hills and such. Yeah, that is a beautiful area. Mm-hmm. Huh. Now, what, but speaking of Waco, and just you know, keeping on the topic of things like local food, I've not been to it yet, but our parents are starting to go to it more and more often. But their their farmers market is building it's up growing. really well, and they've got there are some Baylor students who I saw last year at one of the. Um, it wasn't a. The the, the 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 Texas legislature was not in session, but it was a hearing to see what could be submitted as bills. Uh, and uh, so a couple of the kids, a couple of Baylor kids came up, and they're highly involved in the market there. But they were also petitioning, saying, hey, there's an interest not just in large cities like Austin and, and Houston, but in smaller cities uh, on trying to change legislation to make it easier for people to purchase locally. Yeah, because right, right. now it's, the legislation is awful. I, like, <laughs> like Dad would really love to be able to sell raw milk at a farmer's market. Can't do it. Um, that may change here shortly. That's right. There's right. been a bill that uh, was reissued to expand the rights of raw milk providers. Right. I, I read about that. I think, you Charles, maybe you shared it or maybe you shared it. We probably it all did. But, yeah, uh, yeah it's, um, you know, to do a little bit of name-dropping, uh, Judith McGreary uh, is just doing an amazing job trying to get things pushed through and having a movement um, through it's, it's FARFA, right? Farm yeah, Ranch Farm Freedom Ranch Freedom Alliance. Uh, and I think it's HB 62, 65. How's it looking? I mean, I haven't heard anything yet. I, it's I introduced and on the House floor. Okay, good. Okay. Uh, but if you want to, I mean, you're you're super involved. If you want to be involved, I can forward you the emails. Yeah, and you can, you can get on these calls. Uh, they're once every couple of weeks on a Monday night at 7 p.m. Yeah. And uh, there's an activist group who's talking about these legislative change. It needs to be done. I mean, it's ridiculous that the farmers can't can't connect to the community around them. I mean, mm-hmm. Dad can sell raw milk, but the the people have to come That's onto right. the property. Um, and if he if he takes it anywhere, they have to pay for it on the property, and then he can deliver it to them, which is it's such a stupid it's rule. Backwards. Yeah, it's like the liquor laws used to be in Louisiana. You could buy it at 18, but you can't drink it till you're 21. Like, yeah, so <laughs> we're really going to abide by that. That's stupid. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it's really crazy. The only people that ever bought from him, from him were the uh, the Homestead Heritage people. Mm-hmm. Um, they would buy from him, but those are the only people that had enough of, uh, I guess, the equipment to come out there and get and get milk. Right, but I mean, wake the wake, the landscape in Waco is changing on the food scale. I mean, they have some of the same uh, protein uh, people that come to Austin farmers markets that are providing at the Waco's farmers market, uh, and then there's also 
educational institutions that are getting involved. So I think even Baylor has a small, small little garden or whatnot that they sell at the farmer's market. Yes, whatever these kids and were then my, our mother's uh, school uh, has a stand there as well. And they're growing stuff in the garden and not only serving it at the cafeteria at the school, but they are selling it. They're having the kids go to the market and start learning um, business practice and start learning communication with adults and everything. And that's a valuable skill for people that – Extraordinarily valuable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean of any socioeconomic level. But I mean they're going out there and being able to see commerce and see exchange. Right, and and like you said, interact with adults. I mean, it, for me, that is extraordinarily important. One of the things I can't stand is being around children who are who won't talk to adults. I mean, I know you guys have had this experience too. You're talking to a child, and the parents answer for the child. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not talking two or three, nine, ten years old, where you ask the child a question, and the child looks up at mom and dad like, "Can I answer or what do I?" Well, no, go ahead and tell them. Go ahead and tell. Them. Answer me. You know, what I mean, as, <laughs> as as an only child on my mom and dad's farm i had to do you know they would be out in the fields and they'll, they'll there's going to be a guy come over and pick up calves he's going to give you 80 dollars. go and give him the calf take the money and then give him a receipt okay you know and i'm nine or ten years old and take the truck and go and get some kids won't even order a drink you know what i mean that just mm-hmm. oh god that irritates me it, it, it does and there's you know there's obviously personality sorry that's just that a rant i don't like children <laughs> i don't oh, like children no, let's not go into that yeah. conversation <laughs> my, my, my buddy's kid uh he does does very well, and he'll actually. I've heard him say this several times. Uh, not my buddy, but his kid will say, "I really like talking to adults because I feel like I can talk to them." And it's the cutest dadgum thing, and it's true. See, I would like to be friends he, with he that would kid. Prefer to have a conversation with an adult than his classmates because they don't, you know, they just run around and giggle and play tag and stuff like that. Right. We yeah. can tell him about all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and manipulate them into doing things. That's exactly That's right. right. <laughs> Let's like do we can it. Turn them into little slave laborers. That's yeah. exactly. Well, it's called <laughs> internships here. It's called <laughs> indentured servitude. It's indentured servitude. <laughs> now, this, this idea, though, of experiencing commerce and the kids being part of commerce at the markets, and you know, the other reason that makes it so important is because we we witness commerce every day anyway. Sure. You go to the gas station, that's commerce. You go to the grocery store, that's commerce. You go to the Best Buy, or whatever, and you buy some electronics and a CD or whatever. If people still buy CDs, you know that's that that's commerce, right? But it's on this mass scale that it's impersonal and That's just, very, just, yeah. just not a good thing. But well, I mean, we, we can't overclassify it as not a good thing. But the point of the matter is, is to have them involved locally within their communities and witnessing commerce that way. That's what's going to have an effect when they're eighteen, twenty-five, and thirty years old because they'll carry that. Um, and if we here, here's an interesting study, I had, I had another chance to meet with a, a fellow here in Austin who's highly involved in all the nonprofits, and he and I were just bouncing some ideas back off of, of each other. And he talked about giving, and he said that if someone who has never experienced the art of giving, whether it be five dollars, a hundred dollars, what have you, by the age of twenty-five, is ninety-nine point six percent likely to never donate to never give and so so many of the nonprofits in which he's involved is really talking you know working with children and teaching children how to give uh and several of our friends i'm sure who are parents are trying to teach their kids you know how how to uh, what's the other word um philanthropy right uh and that's that's a good thing but not all parents can get around to doing that and so it is important to have Groups like this guy's, a couple of these nonprofits. But yeah, because those who do give beyond the age of 25 are those who started as kids. Right. Or um, saw, so, it, saw it being done by their parents. No, no, they being... actually, they, not, it wasn't just a matter of seeing. They, oh, they actually were involved. part of it. Okay. Uh, and that's why being part of this commerce as a kid locally is going to benefit all people uh, or going to benefit the economies later on. And I just equate those two together that, you know, psychologically, if you give before 25, you're more apt to continually giving. I guarantee that. And I don't know the studies, but if a child is involved in local commerce, they're going to take that into their adult lives. Well, and with philanthropy too, I think it's important that we well, that we teach the children too that it doesn't have to be just economic. That philanthropy can take other 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 routes. You know, what I mean, physical give, action and right, support. You can give mm-hmm. back to the community even if you don't have the economic means to donate money. Right, mm-hmm. there are ways to contribute to the to the community. That's right, volunteerism, you name it. That's right, and we're working at the the food shelters. And that's what I was about to say. I, you know, I've talked to some of the people at the farms. I, th- I guess it's uh, at, at House Bar and um, at Rain Lily and a couple of the others where they would talk about volunteers who would come out and just just help 
farm because it's part of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's that's really cool. I yeah. think it was at Columbia where they have communal gardens. Is it Columbia? I may be thinking of, the, of a different university. It's either Columbia or Cornell. But in any case, they have they have community gardens for the students. And the only the only criteria for participating is that you put back into the garden. So if you're hungry and you would like something to eat, you can go and pull out of the garden, but you're expected to put back into it as well. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a great idea. Yeah, I think that uh, there's an organization here in Austin that is attempting to do something similar to that. It's called the Food is Free Project, where they will use front yards of people's homes and grow stuff, and it's free for anyone to take. Uh, They just ask for you to help mind it or help tend it or uh, help support it in the future. But, you know, all, all all that giving back is super important. It's probably why crowdfunding. To even include that into the community sake, that's so big right now. They're even having keynote speakers can from. You, can you explain that for me, David? I'm not uh, sure. So, crowdfunding is an online campaign being able to source small mini donations from multitudes of people instead of several large donations from small amounts of people. It's the ability to share a person's message, a person's goal. For example, to start their own business, to record their own album, to such as like Kickstarter, is that what you're talking yes. about? Yes, okay. Kickstarter, okay. Indiegogo, example, yeah. okay. many other things. But I mean, there's keynotes happening at South by Southwest Interactive today, mm-hmm. and the two keynotes are both crowdfunding people. Some woman who started her own company through a crowdfunding campaign, wow. um, and then another gentleman who. I don't, I don't know, remember the other one. In, ingredients. Raised like 250 grand off of crowdfunding. No kidding. Yeah. Um, and Ingredients did a crowdfunding and campaign. And it was more than that, too. They, yeah. they, they really used the community at large for an entire crowdsourcing project to build. That, and it took them forever to open, but they, they, they put their mission statement out there on a crowdsourcing and a crowdfunding website, but also said, hey, maybe you can't give us $25 or $30 or whatnot, but can you give us two hours of your time? Uh, and people from all over Austin and the surrounding areas all said yes, and they had artists come and paint uh, at, at the grocery so store. People build their shelves. Uh, that that garden was all done through volunteers, and some of the volunteers were direct associates, you know, direct, directly associated with the owners, uh, the brothers. But yeah. even still, that's oh, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they had a talk at last year's South by Southwest specifically about crowdsourcing. And mm-hmm. I would assume too that that would just create a sense of ownership around the whole the whole thing. Spot on. Yes. That you wouldn't have otherwise. That this is ours. This is our thing mm-hmm. that we should participate in and be a part of, rather than an external company coming in and putting something in the community. You know mm-hmm. that that's not tied to it. That's really great. No, that's that's exactly right. And it is, it is so important to give people some sort of feel of ownership because that is what's going to carry it forward. Yep. And that yeah. is what's going to make it successful. Uh, you've done. An excellent job of taking ownership over homegrown stuff. I just absolutely love it. I mean, I, I, again, and I've told you guys this before. It just number one, it blew my mind coming to Austin and seeing farms in, in a downtown environment. We're practically in the shadow of downtown Austin, where these where these farms are at, and they're supplying food to a group of people that wouldn't otherwise get really good fresh ingredients. That mm-hmm. that blew my mind. And then just the community that's created at the homegrown revival events, I absolutely adore. It's uh, it's really inviting. Everyone welcomes new people. Everyone is really, really gracious about, here, let me try that. Did you like that? What did you think of this? I'm not sure I like that one, but this was really great. You know, there's that whole sense of we should share this experience, and it's beautiful to me, man. I really like that. So I guess we're almost uh, we're almost at 50 minutes, which is normally where I start 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 drawing a line on them. So Rapid I, fire, quick questions. I, I think I think I want to end with two things. First, um, or actually, lastly, I want you guys to kind of go over some of the upcoming upcoming homegrown revival events and, and things that you guys are going to be involved in. But before that, if both of you would kind of speak to, there's this push in Austin to get more condos in to do away with, not necessarily do away with, but. The taxes are going up. I mean, just from a really practical point of view, places like Springdale are having a hard time because of how hard, you know, how much the taxes are going up. So, how do you see local farming going? Is it something that's being pushed out? Is it something that has a fighting chance over the next 10, 15, 20 years? Or are we in the golden age of it now and we only have to look down? Oh, I definitely have an answer for that. You want to go first or second? 
I'm, I'm going to percolate. I'll go second. Okay, so uh, I think that actually farming is going to be diversified here in the future from all the people that I've been speaking with, all the people that I've visited, and uh, the friends that I know. Um, I think that farming is going to increase, but it's not going to be concentrated urban farms. I think that there's going to be more and more people that go into community gardening and that are taking their yards and then sharing them. Hmm. Um, a lot of neighborhoods are starting to be built and then older neighborhoods are starting to recognize that they have connected fence lines. Right. And one of the things that they did in Berkeley three years ago was they took down the fences between yards and then had shared backyards. And a lot of the shared backyard space became garden space. And I think that is going to be one of the things that we may see in Austin um, with the personalities and the people that are moving into East Austin and the personalities and the people that are moving into South Austin with all these shared backyards, that's a valuable resource. So you're going to start seeing the empowerment of people growing neighborhood places. Mm. Uh, I think that you're going to see organizations like Urban Patchwork start growing more. Not only are they doing the Cherrywood area where they have urban patchwork gardens, but they're about to start a place just south of Old Torth on the east side of 35 where they are already communicating with people's yards and with owners of land in that area to start a patchwork of space that grows fruit trees, that grows produce. Um, and I know that this is a valiant thing and I know that it's, you know, that it's really exciting at the beginning thing. What they need to do is carry on that excitement so that one year from now, it's still going two years from now, it's still going three years from now, it's still going. And I believe that they can do that because once one neighbor sees another partaking in this action, that second person is going to get involved that third person's going to get involved, and that's going to be spread over a series of months and years, et cetera. It will reach a tipping point, to use Malcolm Gladwell's language. It will exactly. eventually hit a tipping point. <laughs> exactly. So I think that that's going to end up happening. I also have high hopes for our community, um, giving feedback to our politicians about the Texas House Farm to Table Food Caucus in their expanding of the bills that they're uh, proposing right now and that are attempting to get onto the House floor, one of them being to actually lower the taxes. They've already gotten away with the wastewater tax uh, for urban farms, but you know, lowering property taxes for people that are giving back to the community, lessening the restrictions and the regulations that have to happen for someone to ha get ag exemptions. Mm. These are all things that you know Eddie Rodriguez and several other members of the Congress are attempting to do or representatives are attempting to do. So uh, I think there's going to be a big political push to continue the urban farms. I think there's going to be a huge community push to continue those and then to take ownership of them. Um, and then I also believe that these areas east of Austin are going to continually revert back to farms. Mm -hmm. uh, you, we've had Tecolote out there for 20 years. We've had uh, Greengate out there for I know over a decade, um, but then Triple R Farms, brand new family farm coming up uh, that is just on the east side of Austin, You and then you're going to get these other people. You have the Young Farmers Coalition that are training farmers at operating urban farms and then going out and helping them purchase land right. and then work land east of Austin. Uh, I think that's going to come back as well. That's um, encouraging to me. That's really encouraging. Everything I mean, you have said is extraordinarily optimistic, and that makes me feel good. <laughs> so so that, that's my opinion. I definitely have a very strong uh, support of all that and uh, well, you respect have your feet on the street with a lot of this, too. So the, the input, your, your opinion, or what you want to espouse here is more than likely true of what's going to occur because you're in constant conversation with the farmers, uh, your, all your farm visits. I mean, these, all these little pieces of communication will help you build this bigger picture. And so when, when I look at it being a little bit more detached from that and seeing it from a, more from a business standpoint and an economic standpoint and a commerce standpoint, I, I agree. Yes, I, I definitely think that we'll see a continual increase. The, the awareness is definitely there. The support is definitely there. And so my opinion would just be that the same way 
I would sum it up and say that the, the face of urban farming might very well change, and, and by that we might see more rooftop gardens on top of buildings mm. uh, in the downtown area. But you know, I look at the different, I look at Austin as a whole, and we talk about East Austin a lot. And yes, this is where it's starting. This is where we will continually see all the farms that David named off stay in business and grow, and they'll, they'll all do very well. But what are we going to do about West Austin? What are we going to do about North Austin? Yes, they have farmer's markets, but there's nothing growing out there. There's no space to grow out there. There's no tilled land ready to be grown. Uh, so will we see some of the more affluent families out that way taking down their fences and having shared gardens? Maybe not in the next five years or so, You know, a decade maybe. It depends on how well the movement works with different types of families. Uh, but I could easily see the there being a grocery store on the west side out in Westlake or the hills or something to that effect with a rooftop garden. And then they sell the produce from that garden directly uh, in their produce section. That's something that I think is just a change of face that, that will increase. Uh, and we're seeing more and more companies do this. Um, Brooklyn Grange up in New York, they have a huge rooftop garden at a couple of different locations. I had a chance to, to pop over there last year. And then there's a company, and I forget the name of the company. Do you, who's the one who actually goes in and pitches and builds the gardens for these large grocery stores, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know off the top of my head either. Um, but anyway, uh, I don't want to see more of the condos. I get the fact that we, we need to have – there has to be living space. I get that. You know, vertical mixed use is probably the way to go uh, when it comes down to it, and it's just a matter of can we build green walls? You know, if, if a condo is going yeah. up, can one of those floors on the condo or a wall or a side or whatnot can that be dedicated to food production? Right. All right, I, and I really do have to add that I'm not against population density. I think that there can be designated areas of arable land and designated residential areas. Uh, with 50,000 people expected to move in Austin in the next six months, year, whatnot, Something and like then that, yeah. that number every single year for the next 10 years, we know that this area is going to grow. And, and I fully support that. Now, granted, instead of building out and taking important land away from what can give us healthy, nutritious, local food. I think that population density and space density is super important to consider. And that's why living walls and rooftop gardens and stuff like that will become more important in the future. That's encouraging that it's not going to have to be binary. It's not mm -hmm. going to have to be one or the other. What's great about people that are moving here to Austin right now, and we see more of this and more of this, is that what draws people to Austin is the current culture about which we speak today. It is this, this food culture, the art culture, and then that means that those who are moving here, um, and you obviously you, you're always going to have different opinions on, no, don't move here. Now, South by Southwest is this week. Everybody says, hey, enjoy your visit. Don't move here. Right. Hey, but the fact of the matter is that the people who are coming to South by, especially this interactive portion, these are the ones, people who, if they do move here, will take our city to the next level, will innovate. Absolutely. And you see a lot of food innovators out there, and I don't think that we should shun them away because, oh, you're new and you're going to increase our property taxes or whatnot. We, should, we really need to embrace those who are going to make the city better. That's every other post on the, the, the Reddit, uh, subreddit for Austin is uh, this this week is enjoy our city. Don't move here. Right. Yeah, right. go home. Every other post. <laughs> I'm thinking that. to myself, hey, you know, do go ahead and thoroughly enjoy. Let's we will absolutely take your money for our economy, for our schools, for our restaurants, for our businesses. And if you choose to move here, be part of the culture when you do. That's what I was about to say. From an intellectual standpoint, if it remains the same, it will stagnate. So at some point, you have to get new ideas in to keep the things moving. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? So, okay, okay guys, uh, go ahead and wrap this up with uh, what do you got going in the future? What are some things that we can look up? So look the Homegrown for? Revival will have several events coming up, the closest one being a the closing night dinner for the Paleo FX conference. This is a first for us uh, to actually associate ourselves with a specific diet, uh, but I think that the local diet and the paleo diet have a lot of similarities. Uh, and to be able to close out their dinner and provide – national and international exposure for a farm dinner plus just have a family atmosphere that's going to be big that will be march 30th um, and then april uh, sonia and tink who is our forager are going to be involved in one of the austin food and wine alliances uh, live fire events so wow. they're going to be out actually roasting full animals or slow smoking full animals for event um, and then may 
We are happy to announce another collaboration with Ingredients, where we will uh, host a dinner there in front of their micro grocery here on so the east side on yeah. Rainer. And it's going to it's going to be a large dinner. It's going to be at least forty eight people, and we will be sourcing from the Urban Patchwork Garden there at the grocery store, along with some produce uh, at a place called Reclaim Space, mm-hmm. which has another. Urban Patchwork Garden um, that we are planting specifically for the dinner. So this will be a first for us as well. We've sourced from local farms. We've sourced from our own homegrown revival garden before, but we are planting food right now specifically for that dinner. That's beautiful. Um, so that, that's what we have going on. And then we have a, a surprise coming this summer um, that we're really excited about, and we'll announce that probably in about mid-May. Excellent. Excellent. Charles, anything you want to promote? I mean, those are all the immediate next steps on events that everybody should try to get a chance to, to attend. And you know, I think we should to, also to add that at any of the events, if anyone sees Tink, they should probably give him a big hug. Big I think bear he, hug. Big bear hug. Big yes. bear <laughs> hug. Tink will make you laugh, and Tink will give you a hug right back. Is he not the most huggable man he, I've ever he seen? He really, really he is. He is a very yeah. huggable individual, and we have to get him on one of these. I want to have, I want to have 45 minutes of Tink stories. Oh, Tink's got plenty of those stories. Yeah. Forty-five minutes of. You might want to make that a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> should, we bring, should it be? Should it be a, a two part Should we plan a trilogy? Is Ab- that absolutely. Be? All right. <laughs> yes. All right, boys. Well, thank you a lot for doing thank this you. for me, and I thank hope you, you guys will much. do some more podcasts with me. We can talk about uh, other stuff if you want to. But this was fantastic. So, uh, so thank you, boys. Appreciate it. Thanks again. Absolutely.